In the hour ahead, we're taking a close look at two historically important port cities that couldn't be more different. Hi, I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're navigating our way to Stockholm in Sweden and to Alexandria in Egypt. Sweden's capital is the essence of a livable, well-ordered society, where the price of a high tax rate promises fewer worries for the modern family. We'll hear from Marita Bergman all about how the Swedes are in high spirits as they prepare for their midsummer solstice traditions of fun in the midnight sun. And we'll also get the lowdown on a storybook royal marriage that's about to take Sweden by storm. And Scotsman Cullen Clement decided years ago to make Alexandria, Egypt, the place where he wanted to raise his family. He'll share how his love of history lured him to this city near the Nile Delta, where ancient influences from across the Mediterranean come together. In antiquity, it was the only city to rival Rome. Hometown guides to Stockholm and Alexandria. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Scandinavia's largest city is a mix of cool, modern efficiency and woodsy islands stretching out beyond the horizon. And while Alexandria, Egypt, attracts swarms of sun worshippers to its seaside resorts, it's also a hotbed of history where you can still find evidence of its ancient importance. I'm Rick Steves, and we're about to get to know these places intimately with our guests today on Travel with Rick Steves. For years, I've thought if I was to live in Europe, Stockholm would be a great place to live. You know, it's a well-ordered society. It's as affluent as Norway, but without all that oil revenue, so they're doing it on their own. And Stockholm is a wonderful mix of lakes and islands and trees and people-friendly cityscapes. To learn more about Stockholm, I've invited a friend and fellow tour guide in. Her name's Marita Bergman. She joins us from Stockholm. Marita, thanks for flying all the way to Seattle to to be with us. Thank you very much. It's uh, an honor for me to be here. Marita, when you think about Stockholm, it's got this wonderful mix of lakes and the sea and the islands... You are right there. Uh, It is a mixture of islands and archipelago outside is very special for Stockholm. It has been a protection through the history and important for the location of Stockholm. Now, uh, Stockholm is the largest uh, city in in Scandinavia, two million people almost, covered through all these islands. Now, originally buried at the end of this maybe 80-mile-long stretch of islands, thousands of islands, literally. Yeah, with the fortress out in the islands to, in the old days to protect the city. That's true. Uh, and actually, you need three hours to go through the archipelago until you come out into the Baltic Sea. So it's a huge, one of the largest in the world, in fact. And then one of the one of the delights for me in my travels is to take the boat. Every time I go from Stockholm to Helsinki on the boat, you have a three-hour cruise through this idyllic island wonderland. Yeah. And you wonder, where's the last island? Yeah, true. And, I mean, uh, coming up to Scandinavia, you're very close to the nature always, and that goes for Stockholm, too. Now, there's an economic foundation for this because I understand in the old days, uh, traders and so on would use the, the Lake Malloran, a long lake, to yes. get to the yeah. sea. And then Stockholm was where the, the lake actually tumbled into There was a locks there, I think. True. In the middle of the 13th century, it became impossible for the ships to pass right where Stockholm is located today. Uh, It is in between the lake and the Baltic Sea, which is starting right in Stockholm. It is uh, also a height difference in between the waters here of about three feet. So the lake goes into the Baltic Sea, actually. So it's a very current uh, area there around Stockholm. And, and people uh, are fishing, right? right people in that spot. Are, yeah, people are fishing salmon there for free. It's, right uh, on the, in the <laughs> middle of a two million person city. Yeah. You've got people fishing for salmon and actually catching a lot. You know, uh, the record of a fish caught in Stockholm is 35 kilos. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the big news for coming up this um, summer solstice is the marriage of uh, Princess Victoria. Yeah. June 19th. June 19th, uh, that's the big day in Stockholm. It uh, is the big day. Last year when I was in Stockholm, Mm -hmm. the big news was the hotel I was in just got literally booked out by journalists from Germany. Yeah. And there was like dozens of journalists coming in, booking it for two weeks. This is a big deal when the the princess of Sweden is marrying her personal trainer, right? True. Her Daniel, her gym trainer. Now, he's a commoner. He's a commoner coming from a small place north of uh, Stockholm called Ockelbo. And, uh, of course, this uh, a lot of questions are raised here because of this. But uh, I want to say first that 
he has had a very long testing period in the royal uh, family, seven years. What is They a met- testing period in the royal family? <laughs> yeah. Uh, seven- sounds kind of fun. <laughs> Uh, seven years is a long period to be tested. Is he the right uh, man to be the prince, which he is going to be titulated uh, here in Sweden? Princess Victoria will always be very well-toned and in shape because her trainer will actually be sleeping with her. Yeah, you have a point there, <laughs> of course. Uh, but the comment now, the latest week, is uh, that... Uh, from the king, because he did the same thing. Well, uh, the, the king, king married Sweden. a commoner. Yeah, from, from Germany, uh, Sylvia. So he said, now, uh, I want my children to marry of love. And now she does that too. Well, if you did not have that option, your pool of opportunity would be very small. Mm. Yeah. There are There's not... two million people in Stockholm, but not very many uh, royalty. No, and not many royalties in, in Europe either. I mean, uh, they are limited. <laughs> so now the Swedish monarchy is the, your classic Scandinavian constitutional monarchy, right? Uh, they are really uh, figureheads, uh, and, and the parliament and the constitution has all the power. Uh, that is true. Uh, since 1905, the king has no power at all. And I think that is a, a very, very important uh, explanation why the royal family is so popular. We have had now questionings in our population about if uh, we shall continue to have uh, the royal family still as uh, the figurehead. And we say yes, because we know they are doing a good job. Well, you pay high taxes, and and the royalty cost a lot of money. What do you think? Uh, I think uh, that they had their children in ordinary schools from the beginning, trying to be close also to the people, trying to get to learn the ordinary people, how they live and so on. That's why they can uh, still be here. Well, you can go out and tour the palace at Drottningholm as a tourist. Uh, yes, you can. And it live. is a lived-in palace. Yeah, true. And if you're lucky, you can see the, the queen, or at least when I was there a few years ago when she had smaller kids, they would, the queen would put the kids in the car and take them to a public school. Uh, yeah, uh, so they did. And they took uh, that decision because they wanted their children to know how it is to, to live in Sweden. And I think that is the clue why they are still remaining figureheads uh, in Sweden. And if all goes well, someday Victoria and Danielle will be the king and the queen. Uh, Daniel will not be the king because oh. that's that's not possible. He oh, will be a prince. But sure, Victoria is going to be our queen next time. Now, their marriage is uh, a couple days before, I guess, summer solstice. Yeah. Tell me about the Midsummer Festival. Mm-hmm. It's uniquely Swedish, more than any other place. I think the Swedes really get into Midsummer Night's Eve. Yeah. Uh, it is uh, the only pagan uh, ceremony that we still have left. Otherwise, we are a Lutheran country. But this is really, really important for the Swedes. It's uh, the lightest period of the year. And uh, it's a family ceremony, too. We get together and uh, we have very, very special rituals uh, during the midsummer night. And what are, uh, can you explain those? Uh, well, the rituals are that uh, hardly no sleep for, for the first. Uh, we get together. Uh, we eat the same food every year, which is then uh, herring and sour cream as main meal. And then afterwards, we are having strawberries. And of course, uh, not the least, we are also drinking our vodka to uh, the herring. That's very, very important. What do you call the vodka? It is snaps uh, or aquavit. 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 The water of life. The water of life, yes. Yes. So basically, it's a big party. And everybody stays up all night. They eat all the traditional food and drink lots of vodka. Yeah, and sing a lot too. Are you there when the sun rises? Is that part of the, the ritual, the pagan ritual? We are together when the sun rises also, and we are hardly sleeping at all this night. So really, you, that is the longest day of the year. It is. And you wait for the sun to rise. Yeah. And the Lutherans let this happen. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. And there are some that has to go to sleep, and that are uh, the girls that are not married. And that's a special thing that I want to to, to say something about, too. If you are an unmarried girl, this night will perhaps tell you who you are going to be married to. Uh, And uh, to do that, yeah. And if you want to know that, you have to sleep a couple of hours. And you also have to have seven flowers. uh, And the number seven is magical uh, under your pillow and uh, sleep a little bit. And then you will dream about the next coming husband. Does it work? 
Uh, well, another thing is that you can't tell anyone. It's oh. only for yourself. That's okay. also another thing. So this is a very hopeful time. It's the after the long, dark winter, you have progressively uh, longer and longer days. And then this is sort of the climax, you could say, of the uh, solar calendar. Yeah, that it is. And it's a fertility thing, too, then. Uh, it is. Uh, People are getting a lot of energy and out of the sun, of course, of the warmth of the family. And when I see you talking, I just feel like this is distinctly Swedish. How do you see yourself distinct from Danes and Norwegians as a Swede? Mm -hmm. Sweden, through the history, has been a little bit of the leading country of Scandinavia. It isn't anymore because now we have been caught up of Norway, especially. I just heard about the GMP now recently that uh, Norway is now have a higher GMP than Sweden. But we have been very proud uh, leading the Scandinavian countries, at least from the 16th century. Well, you had Gustavus mm. Adolphus, right? The Lion of the North. Uh, true. When Sweden was a superpower. Yeah. I mean, down in Europe, far, farther south, they were afraid of the Swedes. Yeah, and they were begging in, in Germany especially, don't let the Swedes come down to us uh, because of this king, Gustav II Adolphus. And that was all wrapped up in the religious wars too, right? Yeah, true. So it was the defender of the Protestants against the Roman Catholic Church yeah, riding yeah. down from the north. Yeah. And you go to the armory today, one of the greatest museums, I think, for military history in all of Europe, the armory on, in in yeah, Stockholm. it's formidable. And, yeah. Oh, it's mm. an incredible museum. Mm. And there you see, it's like a shrine to mm. Gustavus Adolphus. Yeah, you yeah. You see the horse he was riding when he was shot. Yeah, true. And you see the clothing also. It's oh, very it's... exciting, very exciting. And if you're there with a Swede, you feel mm. like you're in the presence of uh, relics of Napoleon or something mm. like yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. You remember the, the glory days of Sweden, but now you are a little bit humbled by modern economic and, and changes and so on, and you realize that you're a family of Scandinavian nations without being dominant. Exactly. Norway and Sweden, we have the most common in, uh, in between the countries, I think, of these three, because Sweden and Norway also was uh, a union until 1905. Denmark, they have a little bit different history, and you can see also the differences in between Denmark, Norway, and Sweden insofar that Denmark is the, the more liberal country ah. uh, looking at the values today. Uh, Sweden, Norway, very regulated countries. And this is astounding to me because I was just in Scandinavia last year talking to Swedes, Danes, and Norwegians, and I found Norwegians and Swedes surprisingly conservative in a lot of areas, and yeah. Danes very progressive. Uh, yeah, that's true. But uh, I, I mean, must organized uh, society. Mm. I mean, people realizing we're all going to work together. We're yeah. going to compromise a little bit on our individual freedoms in order for yeah. us to live well together. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I must also say that uh, the last years now in Denmark, we have other signals too. They are progressiveness in, in some way and talking about immigration and so on. They are closing up the doors now. They and uh, you can see that uh, immigrants are coming over to Norway and Sweden because they are more regulated in Denmark. Yeah. All right. We'll talk more about that mm. shortly. Eight seven seven three 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 rick is our number at Travel with Rick Steves. We'll continue with Marita Bergman in a moment as we look deeper into Stockholm and discuss how Sweden's changing with an increase in immigrants. And later in the hour, we'll get acquainted with Alexandria, Egypt, and what Egypt's cultural capital offers to its visitors. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Marita Bergman, who's a guide in Stockholm, and we're talking about Sweden and the capital city and Marita's hometown, Stockholm. 
Marita, we were talking about the Scandinavian countries relative to each other and so on. I remember looking at a map, a historical map once, that showed Denmark when it was the big empire, and Copenhagen, the capital of Denmark, which is on the far east edge of the country today, was exactly in the middle of the Danish empire as Denmark controlled much of southern Sweden. Yeah, true. And today, when you look at that southwestern part of Sweden, these people have Danish heritage? Yeah, They have a lot in common, and that part of Sweden also stayed Danish for a longer time. Well, uh, that is a special corner of Sweden. That's true in many ways. And it's drawn to Copenhagen, especially now they have this big bridge that goes right across the sound. It's it's a fantastic, expansive area. The bridge has done everything to this area, of course. And it makes Malmo a bedroom community for Copenhagen, which then makes Copenhagen rival Stockholm as the big commercial center. Yeah, true. And people are going over for work uh, to Denmark uh, and to Sweden, so they are connected to each other uh, today again. You talked a minute ago about how immigrants are finding Sweden and Norway a little more welcoming Mm -hmm. these days. Yes. Is Sweden um, doing well with assimilating immigrants and working with immigrants with the reality that A society like Sweden, which is relatively sparsely populated, needs to have sort of a boost to its working force Mm. to bring in immigrants to do the the hard jobs that Swedes might not want to do. The whole guest arbiter, guest worker sort of thing. Uh, I think um, uh, two sides of the medallion uh, here, too. Uh, It's not so easy to explain. Uh, We are in Sweden and in Scandinavia, working a lot on the values from the very beginning in the schools. We think that to raise democratic, broad-minded people is one of the main issues to do in in the Swedish school, not only to bring knowledges, but to make decent people and open-minded people of our children. But on the other hand, the economic situation is the other side to assimilate the people coming. We are now taking in people from um, critical political areas as Somalia and Afghanistan. Iraqis. uh, Iraqis, not so much anymore, but uh, we see them in, in the schools. We see also that Sweden as a small country... We need skills. We see it positively. Languages, and we need also other cultural competences uh, in all our companies. So you can uh, work in a global society. Exactly. Well, that's a very positive reason to bring people in from other other realms. Yeah, and and we think so. I must say the Swedes think so. But on the other hand, it's very, very uh, difficult to assimilate these people into the ordinary society. With that, I mean also to buy houses, apartments in ordinary Swedish areas. That's very, very hard for... Have you uh, ever seen a Somali or an Iraqi properly sucking on the head of a crayfish? Uh, no, I haven't. See, but assimilation I, is quite a challenge. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, but I think also that the newcomers are meeting these cultural uh, things uh, in schools. I was just in mm-hmm. Stockholm for six days making a TV show, and every couple of hours we were in a taxi, and most of the cabbies are immigrants yeah. and fluent in English mm-hmm. and fascinating to talk about. And mm-hmm. it is a challenge, and their attitude is generally not to squat but to assimilate. Mm-hmm. And I think that, to me, must be the, the beautiful ideal. If you can bring people in from different countries, have them assimilate into mm-hmm. your society well, not abandoning their culture and their religion entirely, but mm. working with the people instead of squatting on that land and taking advantage of the welfare system. Yeah, and uh, I think all the communities in Sweden, we are uh, 279 communities, uh, that most of them think that this is a good thing to have new people because they uh, need then work label and they also have a positive attitude to come and also want to help. And it makes Mm. life more interesting. Mm. I think literally a generation ago there was not a single ethnic restaurant in Sweden. Uh, Maybe a Chinese restaurant and that was it. It has happened so much. But looking, imagine I mean, a mm, world with only Swedish food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that's uh, good for about ten days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you are right there. Uh, d- diversity is the best to do, and we think so but because we are a people also that like to travel all around the world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Sweden with Marita Bergman. Our phone number eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. Email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Eric's on the line in Moorpark, California. Eric, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. Got a comment on Sweden or a question from Rita? Hi, Eric. Uh, well, I, I live in Stockholm now. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm actually on vacation in California, but uh, 
you know, I've had a chance to travel a lot around Europe, and I have to say that every time I return to Stockholm, I, I fall in love with the city even more. It, it is <laughs> such, a, such a great place and so underrated, I feel. Yeah. Where do you live then in Stockholm? I live in Södermalm. Oh, well, that's a happening young, place, isn't it? Yeah, it's the young area. Yeah, you're where the action is. Yeah, yeah, I am, and it's you know uh, being an American and 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 living there and and living in kind of Bohemian area, which I feel that Södermalm is or what it's known for. Yeah, you get out amongst the younger Swedes in the park, and you have a picnic, and it just uh, in the summertime, it's just it's very Scandinavian. It's a lot of fun. Okay, Eric, uh, this is Södermalm that we're talking about. Stockholm is a bunch of islands, and Södermalm is uh, like an island, I believe, and it. Yeah. It's there's the real. Progressive vibe there. Um, explain that to people who haven't have not been to Stockholm. Well, I think that Stockholm has some uh, some interesting districts. You kind of have a have a higher end, uh, a very classy district, and you have an older district which is Gamla Stan, and then you have a shopping district. And Södermalm is a very, uh, I, I would say, a bohemian feel. It's young and progressive. There's a lot of art. I, we live in an area where it's Hornstuhl, and there's a, a lot of art studios and interesting music shops, and it's just a it's a very interesting feel. It's a very community feel with a very Scandinavian flair, I guess. And isn't that uh, a good thing, Eric, that uh, the big skyscraper there uh, close to Medborgplatsen, mm-hmm. now they have done that to a student home for students? Yeah, it's well, being a student myself, actually, I'm getting my master's degree there. And, yeah, and, uh, and yeah. being a part of that community, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's a very big, small city feel where, where yeah. you really feel a sense of community with, uh, as you guys were speaking before, a couple million people living there. But mm-hmm. it just doesn't feel that way. It's, it's very homey that way. Yeah. You know, Eric, I, I was just there doing some research for my guidebook, and I found this, like, gravelly beer garden on a bluff overlooking the harbor there, Mosebeck. Uh, Yeah, Mosebaka. And uh, I just was uh, so charmed by the crowd there. Uh, Do you go there? What do you make of that place? Uh, In the summertime, I don't think that there's a better place to have a cold beverage in Stockholm. The the view that's there and, and and like you said, the the people that are there, it's sitting there, uh, you know, people with their their shirts off and and having a pitcher of beer and sharing it with friends. Uh, We've gone there before and sat at a table, and next thing you know, I have, uh, you know, 15 new Swedish friends that found out that I was an American and, uh, you know, wanted to talk about American TV and, uh, you know, the Swedes have a some type of a, a stigma that they are very uh, reserved people, in which, which they are. But I will have to say that when you find Swedish friends and you interact with Swedish people and you get to know them, they are some of the friendliest people that I know anywhere in the world. Well, you, you speak from experience because you, you must have visited and you decided you wanted to stay and uh, you feel very comfortable there. Do you speak Swedish or do you uh, operate out of English? Uh, no, I... You have to a little Svenska, but the problem that I have is it means I, I speak a little Swedish. The problem that I have is the Swedes... And I would say this is such an attribute of Stockholm and Sweden in general is that English is so prevalent within the culture that I, I don't have a chance to practice my Swedish. You know, that's a big frustration for me, too, when I go to countries like Norway and Sweden and, and uh, the Netherlands and so on, is people just jump right into English. It's, they, they almost think in English. And, of course, if you speak Swedish, your, your world is 10 million people or something, and you're going to have to have something that's broader. And mm. I would think if somebody's going to learn a second language, it's not going to be Greek. No, and, and I mean, everyone uh, start to learn uh, English from the third class. So, so it's the second mother language, you can say. I've heard people can get a job like being a postman or something, not even speaking the local language mm-hmm. correctly. I mean, mm-hmm. people are so multilingual. Hey, Eric, have you ever been to a place called Maler Pavilion? Maler Pavilion, maybe. Uh, I'm it's, not familiar it's with the kind of it It's a trendy kind of cocktail bar restaurant <laughs> floating on the lake, about a 10-minute walk up the lake from the city hall. Uh, absolutely, yes, I have been there. It's a it's a beautiful yeah. walk along the lake, and when the sun is low in the sky, everybody's rosé. Everybody's drinking rosé wine. Yeah. And exactly, it, the yeah, sun and the little shines. buckets of ice. Yeah, now, what is with the rosé? It's just must be every... That's the, the drink of the year, I think. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not quite sure. I know that the, the Swedish summertime there, that's a very refreshing drink to have at 9 o'clock at night if you're relaxing in the sun. So it's such a great spot because you have a, a, a beautiful view of looking back on Sodermalm, actually, but... Um, yeah, it's a, it's an awesome spot. All right, Eric, mm-hmm. you found I think you found a fun niche. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Goodbye. See you Bye. in Stockholm. Marita, when you think about Stockholm and Sweden, you think of progressive sort of uh, people. And the big question to me lately is the modern family uh, in Sweden. A lot of people just don't even consider getting married. It's just people live together and have mm-hmm. their kids, and mm-hmm. it's sort of. Um, more of an easy flow situation. Has that changed in the last decade? Is there a backlash against that? What's the general picture? Mm-hmm. 
Well, firstly, uh, Stockholm is one of these cities where you, if you're not married, go to Stockholm because we have a lot of single persons, uh, more than 50% living in Stockholm. I read it was more single people in Sweden than any other country. Yeah, true. I don't know why. Uh, it has to do perhaps with... Uh, the living situation, uh, small apartments, very expensive to live in big apartments in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, I would say that people are getting married more and more today, uh, but in different ways. I mean, we are progressive in that way that you can also get married to the same sex uh, in that way. So uh, that had been legalized now, f I don't know the year, but uh, it is okay to do that. But what we a little bit are uh, longing for, and I think the younger generation, is the big uh, ceremony in the church, uh, the family party afterwards, the dinner and so on, uh, that we didn't have before. A little bit more glamour around it. So a little more ceremony and, and public commitment to the to the union. Yeah, that's true. I met uh, the a woman who's the uh, lead pastor or priest in the cathedral there in Gamlestan. Wonderful yeah. woman. And yeah. uh, it was interesting to talk to her about how there is more of a conservative movement to, to have a little more ritual and a little mm -hmm. more formality in things. One thing fascinating to me, when I'm there during graduation time, I see a lot of high school kids uh, drunk in trucks going through the streets of the yeah. cities. Yeah. What's with that? <laughs> It must be very funny to see. Uh, well, that is also kind of a ritual that uh, the students have. Uh, of course, uh, they want to uh, do a lot of party because the school is over. But, I mean, uh, going up to uh, the high school level there, the three years, is very important. I, I heard that, just to finish off with the drunkenness, I heard that the parents hire the cars and the trucks and actually host the keggers so the kids won't drive. Do you, have you heard of that, or is that is there an explanation? Do the parents endorse this kind of activity as long as there's not drinking and driving because it's a graduation celebration? Yeah, yeah I think you have uh, right there because uh, uh, this ritual is so very worked into the system, so to say. Uh, so you can't stop it. They won't. They would do it anyway. And it's kind mm -hmm. of a parental pragmatism. They're yeah. going to do it anyways. Yeah. Let's provide a driver. And let's make the kids so they don't have to hide about this and lie to their parents. Yeah, that is that is true. If you're traveling through Sweden anywhere in May and June, you're going to see these party vehicles going around. Yeah. And at the first glance, you might go, this is terrible. Kids are drunk mm. in public. Second glance, they're celebrating the finishing of a high school career mm. and their parents are paying for the party and the kids are not drinking and driving. I think also that uh, they are getting drunk, but it's uh, limited in a way also. They're drinking beer for the first uh, uh, mm -hmm. and for the second now. They are really, really dancing, making a party on oh, these. Yeah. So uh, we have very few examples uh, that they are... Uh, it's a decent drunkenness. Yeah, yeah, it's a decent drunkenness, I would say so. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marita Bergman, who comes to us from Stockholm in Sweden. Marita, if a traveler is going to be in Stockholm sometime during the year, not during Midsummer Night Eves, because that's the obvious thing, June 22nd or yeah. whatever, yeah. but some other time, and they want to really have a festival and connect with the locals and, and feel like part of the scene, what would be a good bet? Well, uh, that is for sure going out somewhere you, where you can eat crayfish. Crayfish? Crayfish, that's the big thing in August. And uh, how do you do that? Well, the best thing to do that is to go out somewhere in the archipelago, I think. So this take a ferry boat from Stockholm out to a small community in the islands. Yeah, it's a wonderful thing to do that. Or you can do it on the ferry boat, too. There oh, are yeah. possibilities to do it on the, uh, the small boats, too, also. So you get together, you, you order your crayfish. Yeah. And... And you order also the aquavit, of course, because for each, for one claw. Each crayfish has two claws. Yeah. So you have two little drinks of aquavit. So for each claw, you have one aquavit for that. Uh, that's a kind of a ritual. And for every aquavit that you take also afterwards, you have to sing a song, so-called uh, snaps songs <laughs> in Swedish. Uh, they are very short songs, and that, that keeps also the festivity uh, together uh, and also rising up uh, the atmosphere very, very much. Okay, so I'm on a boat with, like Eric, with a bunch of new Swedish friends. It's August, so it's crayfish time. Yeah. You, you join a group of people, and they've got their crayfish, and they've got their akavit. 
And yes. each crayfish has two claws, so you have to have two slugs of akavit. Yeah, that's true. And the sun is warming up all of the islands that you cruise by, those little cabins, and everybody's out on their decks enjoying mm-hmm. the wonderful long summer nights. Mm-hmm. And you're going to sing a song. Sing me a crayfish song. Helan gor, and then we drink your aquavit. <laughs> Good. And what does that mean? You can't explain it. It's just like a, a funny. What's the no, last? No meaning. Uh, if you take helan, uh, that's to take the whole glass at one time. If you take only half of this, you, you, you sing halvan, uh, then you drink half of it only. Uh, so you you take it in two times, uh, and that that's it. <laughs> so it's just a, it's, you're, you're <laughs> going to drink a half a glass, you're going to drink a full glass. Yeah, and uh, that's just over and over. Yeah, and uh, you have also to know that you are surrounded then with uh, family, friends, and so on. There are also other things on the table, uh, bread, especially cheese, to that also. And when you take the crayfish for the first time. You have to also sip the sauce out of the crayfish, which the crayfishes are boiled into with dill, uh, very much so salt in it. So you sip in the dish that the crayfish was No, you in. sip right... Uh, out uh, of its body? Out, out, out of its body oh, like that. Oh, you break its arm off and you suck the juice out uh, of that. Uh, yeah, that's true, like that. All right. Uh, and then you take the claws because the claws, the meat okay, and the claws claw. are very, very good. Yeah, you break the claws. Uh, and what do you do to the head? Uh, nothing. Oh, you break the head, of course. And but throw you it away. Yeah, you Thank throw it goodness. away. Yeah. But the claws are, are good. If you're really a really good uh, crawfish eater, you take also the, the butter that is uh, within uh, the head of the crawfish. The butter? Mm-hmm. What is the butter? You mean the, the brains? Ca- no. <laughs> no. Uh, if you look into it, there is a small surface of butter-like uh, things that but you just take. But it's not butter a- that a cook put in there. It's butter that's part of its yeah, its yeah. physical makeup. Yeah. Okay, so butter is a euphemism for some sort of a yeah, soft meat, yeah, we true. would say. Yeah. So the real good crayfish eater goes for the delicacy in the head. Yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. Sounds like you're not the best crayfish eater. <laughs> I take the best out of it, yes. Okay, but yeah. you're probably good with the drinks. Sing us that one last line again. You've got your drink and... Thank you very much, Marita. Tusen tak. Varsågod. Tack så mycket. Varsågod. Our next destination has double the population of Stockholm, and it's part of an entirely different kind of society. Up next, Colin Clement tells us about the city he's adopted as his home, Alexandria, Egypt. It's a city with an intriguing history, where Mediterranean style meets the Arab world. And it's where we're going next on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Alexandria in Egypt, home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had the ultimate library in ancient times. We're going to learn about tourism in Alexandria here. Why do they call it the Pearl of the Mediterranean? It's a big city, four million people, Egypt's largest port, and we're joined today by a Scotsman who lives there, Colin Clement. Colin, thanks for joining us from Alexandria, Egypt. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You grew up in Scotland. You ended up in Alexandria. Sure. Doesn't make any sense to me. What's the charm of Alexandria? The charm of Alexandria, uh, I fell in love, not with the ancient history of Alexandria, I must admit, but with the modern history, the 19th century, the rebirth of Alexandria, when it became a meeting place, a crossroads of all the peoples of the Mediterranean, and developed to the cosmopolitan society that that featured in much of the great literature of the 20th century from that area, Lawrence Durrell's Alexandra Quartet, the poems of Constantine Cavafis, uh, Stratis Circas, etc. So when you hear this Pearl of the Mediterranean nickname, does that make sense then? It does from that period, absolutely, because it was a beautiful, modern, very, very wealthy city. It was Nice. Nice in the 19th century? Absolutely. Now that puts it in perspective. I've heard that the atmosphere in Alexandria, while it is Egyptian, 
is more Mediterranean than Middle Eastern. Much more so, yeah. It's, it is now become, it's reverted to Egyptian, but the feel of the place, the architecture... Okay, so the 19th century is more Mediterranean, and now it sort of had to join up with the Egyptian cultural power. Yes, yeah, so when the Egyptians you know, shook off British control and gradually became masters of their own fate, clearly they, they repossessed a city which had been dominated by a foreign community up until so the 1960s. Even in the 19th and 20th century, the early 20th century, it was seen by the Egyptians. It's always been the second city, the cultural capital. Egypt's gateway to the northern Mediterranean, to Europe. Egypt has never sort of sealed itself off. Um, it's always seen itself as being you know, a Middle Eastern and African and to a certain extent a European or at least a Mediterranean country. So it's integrally part of Egypt, but with that Mediterranean flair. How would you compare and contrast Cairo and Alexandria? They're they're fundamentally different cities. I mean, their histories are different. Cairo is one of the metropolises of the Arab world. It's like an urban jungle. It's a huge, huge... It needs a paint job. It needs more than a paint job. No, it's one of the great cities of the world, but it's an exhausting place to visit. Fascinating. A history which stretches way back into the mists of the pharaonic past has marvelous Islamic monuments and has a really, really bustling modern scene. Alexandria has a slower pace. It's a quieter, it's a slightly less ostentatious city. Hmm. There is no real old town to Alexandria. What is old is really the 19th and the 20th century. Now, that's interesting because I know it just because it was founded by Alexander the Great 300 years before Christ. It was a center of learning in the ancient world. Uh, tell us about it as one of the wonders of the ancient world and that incredible library. Oh, it was. Undoubtedly, it was, the, it was one of the great cities of the, of the Mediterranean world in antiquity. It was the only city to rival Rome. It took over. In Athens fell, Alexandria grew, and it was, for about 500 years, the center of the Western world. Now, that lighthouse must have been incredible. That lighthouse, which stood from... We know it was standing about 280 before Christ, and it finally came down in the early 14th century A.D., so it stood for an awful long time. Now, did that lighthouse mean this is the sort of gateway to Egypt for all the ships that were coming and going? Yes, it stood as a, initially, I think it stood as a sort of dynastic symbol of welcome, but also stamping control over that area. It was erected by Ptolemy II. Uh, probably it didn't just have the role as a beacon on a, what's essentially a flat and, and, and difficult uh, coastline to to access, mm-hmm. but it also was a marker of who's in charge. I the see. archaeology that we've been doing, we've been diving on the site of it now since the late 90s, and we found an awful lot of colossal statuary, which was undoubtedly associated with the overall complex, and that colossal statuary is of Ptolemies, is of this Greek dynasty, but dressed as pharaohs. So this was Greek, ancient Greece, in what we think of as Egypt today. In one, yes. I mean, the town was founded by Alexander the Great, in sort of 331 before Christ, and then became a Greek-dominated city. But they were not colonials. They didn't. Well, so it was the Greek culture that was just embraced absolutely. by the locals. Absolutely. Well, brought brought by Alexander. Brought by brought by Greek settlers that eventually spread through other parts of Egypt, but not wholeheartedly during that same period. While we presume Alexandria retained a Greek nature and the Greek language, the hinterland of Egypt was still allowed to continue with its, its time-worn traditions and still built in the, in the pharaonic style as well. Now, when you think of ancient Alexandria with its incredible lighthouse, one of the wonders of the ancient world, you, you can have a connection to its passion for learning as a learning center because it had this biggest library of the ancient world. And I understand that the connection from a maritime point of view would be if you wanted your ship to, to come into the harbor... You had to give up all the books on the ship so they could be copied for that library, is that right? We know from the sources that any ship arriving had to give up any, well, I say books, it'd be scrolls in those days, but had to give up any sort of written works to the authorities, which would then be copied, and as often as not, the originals would be kept and placed in the library, and the copies given back to the original owners. These are some of the anecdotes which have come down to us. That's an aggressive appetite for uh, learning. Absolutely. No, this is one of the first instances, I think, where a a city or a civilization was interested in learning for the sake of learning. We weren't just amassing information to better control populace or to increase taxes or or to, to develop a stronger army. We were interested in everybody's knowledge. Wow. Alexandria. I'm speaking with Colin Clement. He's a tour guide who lives in Alexandria in Egypt. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. And Carol's on the line in Silver Spring, Maryland. Carol, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I teach church history in a graduate school of theology. And, of course, uh, instructors often daydream about taking a group of students to visit historical sites. So I'm wondering what specific 
specifically we could come to see from the Christian era of Alexandria, uh, particularly the 4th and 5th centuries, well, late Roman Empire and also extending into the early Byzantine era. Um, I know it's difficult because um, people of different religious persuasions tend to destroy the remnants of the religion that was prevalent before their advent. So we have Christians who destroyed um, pagan temples like the Serapium, and then we have Christians of different theological loyalties who destroy each other's places of worship. And I'm wondering, what is still standing? What can we see? In Alexandria specifically, so certainly Egypt now is a Muslim country, a Muslim-majority country, but about 10%, the figures sort of vary depending on the source, but about 10% of Egyptians are Coptic Christians, what are called Coptic Christians. Now, what do we mean by Coptic Christians? Coptic Christians, are the, they are the original Egyptian Orthodox Christians. They are the, getting back to... The word Coptic comes from a corruption of the Greek Egyptos, meaning Egypt. Alexandria and Egypt was evangelized, traditionally say, by St. Mark. St. Mark the Evangelist. He came in 60 or so AD. Venice got the bones of St. Mark from Egypt, didn't they? They did. They robbed the body from the cathedral, mm. the Morcosea Cathedral in the heart of Alexandria, and took them back to Venice in a barrel of salted pork. Traditional robbed. They said rescued. Uh, why? They took them from a Christian church. Oh, the Christian they robbed church them. was oh. not under any threat. Okay. Um, and that church, the Morosea, although in a completely different modern form, still stands in the heart of Alexandria and is the seat of the Coptic Patriarch of Egypt, although he spends most of his time in the Church of Anabasea in Cairo. Nonetheless, traditionally, that's the heart of the Egyptian Coptic Church. So there are things to visit. There's also a Greek Orthodox presence there, which it dates back to very early. There's some recent work being going on. A friend of mine Lefteris is working in the library and restoring some of the, the manuscripts they have, and they have, they have Bibles from the 7th century AD. And wasn't there a pope in Alexander that was second only to the pope in Rome? I think in early Christianity, there was five important bishoprics. Okay. There was Rome, because it was the Roman Empire which had converted to Christianity. There was Constantinople, the town of Constantine, who instituted Christianity as being the religion of the empire. And then we had Antioch, Jerusalem, of course, and Alexandria. So Alexandria was one of the top Alexandria five was one of the top five government centers of Christendom. Of Christendom in, in the early years. Of course, when Alexandria fell to the Muslims, it lost its primacy. It's lost its its, its importance, right. perhaps, as a as a political center. So to get back to Carol's question, hmm. physically, what would the old Christian sites be in Alexandria? In Alexandria, few and far between. Not much. That you, you, there are the remains or the sites of sites. I see. Just outside of Alexandria, not far out in the desert towards the west, there is the site of Abu Mina, Mari Mina. Now, St. Minas, he's a saint within the Coptic Orthodox Church who is very greatly revered. A sort of familiar story, he was a Roman legionary, he was a Roman soldier who refused to sacrifice to the emperor and was thus martyred. Um, his last wish was to come back to Egypt from where he belonged. He was put on the back of a camel, and the camel walked all the way until it suddenly stopped, and he was buried there, just outside of Alexandria. Now, this center, Abu Mina, developed into one of the most important pilgrimage sites in, say, the 6th and 7th century in Christendom. Really? Christians from all over Europe would go to north of Egypt? We have found little flasks in St. Minas, because people would come buy the little tourist souvenir, little clay flask, which would be filled with holy water because there was a spring underneath the church where his body is reputedly buried. And we found those flasks throughout Western Europe. Back in 6th, 7th, up, up into the 8th century, it was still a very, very important pilgrimage spot. Carol, I hope that gave you some ideas on Christian sites in Alexandria. Yes, it was wonderful. Thank you so much. And good luck with your teaching. Thanks. Joan's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Joan, thanks for your call. Yes, I'm heading to Egypt and I'm going to be in Alexandria for a couple of days. And I'm really interested in the underwater archaeology there um, that they've been doing. And I wonder, is there a way to see it close up? There is, absolutely. I mean, while you won't be able to dive with the archaeological teams themselves, there is a dive center that's been established in the Eastern Harbor, which has access to the underwater sites, both within the Eastern Harbor and just outside, on the site of the Faros, on the lighthouse that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. So, yes, you can organize dives there. I'm not endorsing this by any manner of means, but I know it's there. Well, I wasn't really thinking about a dive. I was ah. wondering what I could see on foot. Oh, I see. Well, <laughs> or under, whatever. Well, obviously, the stuff underwater is underwater, and therefore you can't see a whole lot. 
Um, however, within the heart of Alexandria, next to the site of the, the Ro- there's a Roman theater, Roman Odeon, I should say. It's not a theater. It's a Roman Odeon, a large archaeological park in the center of the city called Comedeca, if you can remember that. Mm-hmm. Within the, the compound of Comedeca archaeological site, there is a sort of open-air museum of artifacts that have been lifted from under the water, which include uh, statuary, parts of obelisks, inscribed blocks, all manner of pieces which have been lifted from, from the underwater sites. Oh, that sounds perfect. Is there any lecturing or anything to learn more about it? Um, on the site, you mean? Yeah. On site, or no. Or anywhere there? Unfortunately, not. Egypt is rather poor in that sort of interface between you know the archaeology and the general public, unless you're going with a group. If you're going with a group, you will have a guide who should be able to explain it. Guides, of course, vary from... Are there local guides you can hire in Alexandria? There are, but nothing really to write home about. I would suggest you get yourself a very good book and get on the internet and, and, and brush up on that. Unfortunately, the Greco-Roman Museum in Alexandria is shut for restoration, which is a shame. The National Museum is still open. There's also a museum within the brand new library building, which is well worth a visit. Oh, that's good. I would imagine guidebooks would point you in those directions. Cullen, we're talking about this uh, incredible library and this incredible lighthouse. Is there just absolutely nothing left of either of those things? The library and nothing. Nothing. Effectively nothing. The, the lighthouse, yes. And the lighthouse. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've brought up from underwater and located some pieces still underwater, which would form a monumental doorway that stands 11 and a half meters high. Must have been an incredible sight, breathtaking sight. Yes, absolutely. Oh, no, it was huge. Especially in the context of the ancient world. Absolutely. Yeah. Joan, good luck on your trip to Egypt. Thanks so much for the information. And thanks for your call. I'm speaking Bye-bye. with uh, Cullen Clement, and we're talking about Alexandria. And, of course, Alexandria is on the Mediterranean coast of Egypt, uh, on the edge of the delta of the Nile. And Egypt's a big country, but when you think about it, it's really a small country when you when you take the inhabitable area, right? Well, ultimately, you can live on the delta, which is very, very rich and fertile area, or you can live in the Nile Valley, which has a sort of strip of greenery on either side. But the rest of Egypt is desert, a so pretty bleak desert at you that. You fly over Egypt, you see a green ribbon in the middle of a desert. Literally, that's what you see. And um, roughly... Eighty percent of the imports and exports and almost half the people live up on the delta, Alexandria, and that stretch of 130 miles across or something like about, that. Yeah, about 40 million people live within the delta. Yeah, 40 million people. Yeah. All right, now let's talk a bit about the Nile. Uh, the Nile, you can tour it cruising. Can you cruise from Alexandria to, to no, Cairo? No, you can't cruise from Alexandria to Cairo. So no, generally you cruise... You would go down to Cairo, or in fact, usually one goes further south into Upper Egypt to do the Nile cruising and to visit the temples of Luxor and Edfu, et cetera, et cetera, which is a lovely way to go. It's a lovely way to go. So if you're thinking about a sort of a multifaceted uh, experience in Egypt, you very well could tie Alexandria in with the more predictable aspects. How, I think you could. I mean, Alexandria... What, what would you propose as a, as a nice, well-rounded trip to Egypt with a reasonable amount of time? Well, two weeks. I think you definitely need two weeks if you're going to do Egypt justice. There is a lot more than that, but certainly a few days in Cairo. It's one of the great cities of the world. And don't just go to the pyramids and the National Museum. You've got to hit the market area, Islamic Cairo, fantastic bus. It is, you know, Arabian Nights country. It's also worth, I think, nightlife in Cairo can be very, very slick and very, very good fun. So don't just think of it as being some sort of an old Cairo theme park. Is there a place called Old Cairo? There is Old Cairo again, which is... I love that area. Which is Jewish and Christian Cairo, Roman Cairo. It's just a jumble of activity, commercial activity in the streets. Ah, now that's the Khana Khalili. That's Islamic Cairo. Okay, Khana Khalili. Khana Khalili, right. I hired a taxi and had him turn up the music and Mm -hmm. roll down the windows and just joyride it for an hour. No, it's a great way to travel around. In Khana Khalili. Yeah. Okay, and then from, so you do your Alexandria, you do Cairo, and then what would you And be? then catch the night train. Catch the night train down to Luxor. And either hop a cruise there. You should perhaps think about booking these things ahead of time. You can pick up deals there on the ground, but you, you can know, also get very, very nice packages. I took the night train, and it was an elegant experience, although I had to pay a little backsheets to get a ticket. Is it more straightforward now to get a ticket? Oh, it's much, everything is much more straightforward, straightforward. I think, than the last time That's you were there. Good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they, they've got a little bit slicker. They computerized. You can buy return tickets now. Oh, you, I remember you had. Yeah, that was right, tough. But right. you leave, obviously, late at night, and you arrive, and it's a crisp morning mm. in Luxor, and you, it's hot in the middle of the day, so you want to get some mileage out of your crisp early morning. Well, you want to be very careful what time you go there. I mean, stay yeah. away from Egypt in the midsummer unless oh, you yeah. are really attuned to, to hot, hot weather. Colin, just a little bit about safety for travelers. Is the government of Egypt stable, and is there a fundamentalist element that is actually ever targeting tourism to make problems? <laughs> There has been in the past a fundamentalist element that has deliberately targeted tourism as a means of uh, unsettling the government. That's over. I understand that the government, according to a lot of fundamentalists, is so clueless and inept that they've got a parallel government offering public services and education and so on that almost is growing up in a parallel world that even rivals 
the formal government in how it impacts certain segments of the population? I, I, that's fair to say on how it impacts certain segments of the population. I mean, the, the, the poorest and most dispossessed will turn to the mosque for support rather than going through government circles. The government is overstretched, underfunded, and badly managed, and largely illegitimate. President Hosni Mubarak, maybe I should has been in power since 1981 when Anwar Sadat died. Now, it's an awful long time to be in power. He's an elderly gentleman. He's not in the best of health. And the trouble for us or for Egypt at the moment is that there's no established means of succession. So nobody knows what's coming next. So there's a sort of vacuum at the moment. So is it a dictatorship or a democracy or somewhere in the, the middle? military in, su- in suits, military in business suits. The military in business suits? Yeah. You can learn about that talking with somebody in a tea house sucking on a shisha. You can. I mean, they love to talk politics. I have lived there for 20 years. My daughter, who is 12 and a half years old, is blue-eyed and blonde-haired. We would not live in a society we thought in any way was dangerous. It isn't dangerous. Good point. And Egyptians are extremely welcoming, extremely hospitable. I've been speaking with Colin Clement. We're talking about Alexandria and the rest of his adopted homeland, Egypt. Colin We always think of uh, the ancient stuff as tourists, but of course you're in Alexandria because of its uh, 19th century and modern charm, and I understand that it's got quite a cosmopolitan and even a bohemian edge in the culture there. If you and I were to walk around in Alexandria tonight and and have a good uh, bohemian time, what what Ah. might we do? Oh, what might we do? That's one of the beauties of Alexandria, I think, is you can dip and weave. I could take you to some seriously seedy bars up in the Atarine area, and the Atarine area is now the sort of it's the the, the the antique area, the old antique shops selling off some of the finery of the old villa society from the early 20th century. And there's some really good old CD bars there. Then I might take you down through Manchea, which was the heart of the cosmopolitan town, but is now sort of ramshackle Italian architecture, heading down to the port, and we go to the Greek Yacht Club for perhaps the best fish dinner in town. And the Greek Yacht Club, of course, looks out over the eastern harbour, over the fishing boats, the lights thereof, and then the run of the Corniche as it disappears off into the east. It sounds like my kind of dipping and weaving. That's marvellous, yeah. And the wine in Egypt is much better than it used to be. Colin Clement, I'll see you in Alexandria. Thanks so much. (laughs) Come on over. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Scandinavia, the Baltics and beyond, one small group at a time. And this year, we're offering more than 30 exciting itineraries. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.